folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, just one program note, today's interview does have a few curses in it that are unbleeped. If you want to, if that freaks you out, you can go to WFMU.org slash Michael and listen to the archive of what we aired on the radio. It's the same interview, just, of course, the curses are bleeped out to, to air on the radio. It's WFMU.org slash Michael. And just look for the interview with Frank Jekyll of the 1910 Fruit Gum Company. So a couple weeks ago, I played one of their songs on the air. I always knew there was an interesting story behind the bubblegum scene that was kind of centered in New York City. And uh, this pair of producers uh, had a lot of bands in this sort of bubblegum stable. Uh, So I was pleased to find out that this band, the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, uh, still exists with one original member, that's Frank Jekyll, and they were and are a New Jersey-based band. So... I got in touch with Frank. He came down to Studio B minus, and here we are. I hope you enjoy it. It's me and Frank Jekyll. All right, there is the 1910 Fruit Gum Company and Frank Jekyll, guitar player, singer, etc., joins us. Welcome, Frank. Good morning. Welcome, Michael. All the band bios say that the band is from Linden, New Jersey. Is that right? And is that where you grew up? That, of all the information that's out there about the Fruit Gum Company, that is 100% true. Okay, good. I'm glad to know that that uh, we'll start right off the bat with that there may be some not quite correct information out there, and maybe today we can clear up uh, some of that stuff. So when oh, did you I've start? Been, I've been working on trying to clear one thing up forever, because uh, for some odd reason, uh, when, can't remember the guy's name, he wrote a compendium of uh, rock and roll and talked, talked about uh, all the groups, etc. about 40 years ago. And in there he said, the 1910 Fruit Gum Company wasn't a real band and it was only people in the studio, musicians recording the songs and pa-pa-pa-pa-pa, uh, which is uh, 100% false. Hmm. And I don't know where he got it from. Probably, I, I, my, I surmise that it came from the fact that uh, the Ohio Express was another group in, in Cassinets and Katz's Fold. And the Ohio Express initially were totally 100% a studio band. In fact, all their records were recorded by studio musicians, and uh, they didn't even sing on them because Joey Levine, who was the songwriter of Yummy Yummy and Chewy Chewy, um, he did the singing also, and he was never in the band. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so people just assumed all bubblegum was some sort of fake yeah, studio not, concoction. Not, not only did they say that we were a studio band, they say that Joey Levine sang all our songs. Yeah, but and that's The fact of the matter true. is, I didn't meet Joey Levine until about eight, seven or eight years ago, so uh, <laughs> he was hardly involved. Huh. So the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, I believe, evolved from a band called the Jekyll and Hydes. Is that Jekyll and the Hydes. Jekyll and the Hydes. So when did that band start? Around 1965. And when did you start playing guitar? Got my first guitar at age 14 um, in 1960 and uh, took to it uh, like a duck to water and uh, loved it and, and just went on from there. Formed my, formed my first band, me and a couple of friends, around 1963 or so. And uh, in 64, I played with a band called The Notations. In the summer of 65, we, we, we actually performed up in the Catskills at the Grossinger Hotel for the summer, entertaining uh, all the little kitties while their parents were sunning themselves by now the tell pool. Tell me about that gig. Is that like several hours a day just playing covers? It was one hour a, a night, six nights a week. We had one, we had one day off. And uh, yeah, it was just covers because we didn't have any original material. And did you then. stay at Grossinger's? Yeah, they gave us a little cottage to basically uh, sleep in. For an in. hour a day's work, that sounds f- fantastic. It was. I mean, it wasn't great money, but uh, 
it was certainly a, a fun experience uh, for the entire summer. So it was, you know, it was fun. Nice. Uh, Jekyll and the Hydes, where, where, what, what was the, the club scene or the, what where were you guys playing? Teen clubs or? There really weren't any teen clubs to, to, to speak of. There were teen dances sponsored by uh, churches and synagogues. Swim clubs would hire us once in a while. We would play there. So that's what we mostly did. So 66, it's interesting that you're one of the few people I've talked in uh, in a 60s band who started playing guitar pre-Beatles on Ed Sullivan. You know, most yes. of, so many guys are just, that is the, the, the bang moment. So 1966, were there a million bands like Jekyll and the Hydes out there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then in Linden, New Jersey, there was at least three or four. And I know the surrounding towns had them, too. I mean, it was just a thing to do. I mean, people, uh, young kids aspired to it, at least the ones that weren't jocks. And uh, and I was far from a jock, so. <laughs> gotcha. So what would, a like, you know, I don't know, a teen dance pay? Typically, we would get maybe 50 or 60 bucks for the night, okay. split it up five ways. It was like 10, 10 bucks, 12 bucks each. And at this point, I guess you're in your late teens or so, were your folks... Uh, you know, Frank, go be a doctor, or were they cool with that? My folks never really pushed me uh, in that way. It just wasn't wasn't a thing. I was free to do what I wanted to do. They wanted me to do well. They wanted me to do better than my father had, who all he ever did was uh, build cars and General Motors for his entire life. That was his career. That's a, nothing wrong with that, but yeah, I... Well, it was disappointing in a way because he was the, the valedictorian of his high school class, and he went off and fought in World War II, came back, and there was the GI Bill sitting in front of him, and uh, he did not take advantage of it, who knows why, and never went for any further education because no one in his family had ever done that, but he could have because he was brilliant. Huh. But it didn't matter. He, he chose his course. I think that's interesting i mean that's that's part i guess in some ways part of your story having that guy as your dad and do you think it's just what happened in the war just made him not really interested in tackling I, too much that's a very interesting hypothesis and i think you're probably uh you're probably on the mark because yeah. i know he would never he was unwilling to talk about the war you had to drag it out of him he wouldn't even admit to anything and in fact he was a survivor of the battle of the bulge and the only 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 one out of every seven or eight guys survived it. So uh, he lost a lot of his very close friends, and uh, at the age of 21, when he was there, so it, it kind of uh, it certainly did have a huge impact on him and his life for the rest of his life. But but one not one that you would know in talking to him because he wouldn't say. So how did Jekyll and the Hydes get signed to a record label? If every town had four of these bands, how did you guys get singled out and get noticed? Well, Jekyll and Hyde's kind of uh, evolved the, in the summer of uh, 66. The drummer left, and we, we then acquired another drummer, Floyd Marcus, and he brought Pat Carwin, the other guitar player, along with him. That was the five guys that ultimately became the Fruitcomb Company. And uh, they weren't interested in continuing with a band called Jekyll and Hyde's because I was no longer the center I was the center of Jekyll and the Hydes because the guys around me were, you know, followers and I was a leader sort of. But there was the band, uh, the uh, Fruitcom Company had, you know, Floyd, who was the leader too, so he wasn't going to go for a band called Jekyll and the Hydes. So it was fine with me. I didn't care about keeping the name and we renamed ourselves Odyssey. Um, however, 
when we finally got a recording contract, Jeff Katz and Jerry Kazanitz had other ideas, and they wanted us to be the 1910 Fruitcomb Company, a name which the album cover says, I, I found a rapper, gum rapper, in the pocket looking for retro clothes for the group, which was just PR. And in reality, they gave us the name, and then later on, I found an old slot machine that came out of a American Legion where my family was involved in in Pennsylvania, and I took possession of it, had it renovated, and I was looking at it one day, and I noticed that the jackpot bar on the top, it said uh, Bell Fruit Gum Company, and on the bottom it said copyright 1910. So, What I is the I odds that I, you would come into possession of that exact slot machine? Kind of, kind of interesting. Yeah. But, but I, I'm a firm believer, although I don't have any facts to back it up, because uh, I never got the opportunity to ask Jeff, where he got the name. So how did those guys find you? How did, why you guys? Okay, we were, uh, we got together in the fall of 66 and started working on some original material. Floyd was a prolific songwriter, probably wrote over a thousand songs. And we started to work on some of uh, his original stuff. And then in March of 67, we went into New York to the Dick Clark Studios, the recording studio on Broadway and paid a few bucks, Floyd's uncle put the money up, to uh, record four of Floyd's tracks. So now we had a a 10-inch acetate with two tracks on each side, and uh, we each got a copy. You still have that? I I do, but it doesn't play. The uh, coating, it's it's aluminum with acetate coating, and it bubbled up, so it's Mm -hmm. no longer plays, sadly. (laughs) So fast forward a month or so, and uh, a friend of the man, Butch, he worked in a luncheonette, and he, uh, he would to chat with the customers, and one of the customers was Jeff Katz's father. And they went back and forth, and finally, Jeff Katz's father said, my son's a big you know, producer, he just had a big hit record with uh, Big Bar on Steel by the Ohio Express, and, you know, he's, and uh, Butch said, well, I got some friends that are really great, you ought to, you ought to hear them. And uh, so the demo went to Jeff Katz's father, got in Jeff Katz's hand, he played it and liked what he heard, contacted us and said, I want to hear you live, not believing that maybe the demo wasn't really us, you know, you can't blame him. So he came out to our next gig, which happened to be at a swim club. So uh, he comes to the swim club, and we're entertaining the kids while they're splashing, and heard us, realized we were the real thing, and that led to discussions that uh, in October we signed the contract with him for management and with uh, Buddha for recording, and uh, so we were now on our way to recording our material, so we thought. (laughs) Did he bring you to Buddha, or was he working for Buddha? He brought us to Buddha. And what was the reputation of Buddha at that time in your minds back then? I I didn't know anything. What did I know about recording? And what kind of deal was it? Was it uh, long-term? Was it big money, small money, no money? It was a three-year contract. It gave us 2%, 3 3%, 4% for each year if we stayed. The bad thing about the contract was we weren't contracted as a band we were contracted individually and the contract gave them the right to, to dismiss anyone at any time if they felt like it and it also assigned the name to them so we didn't own the name gotcha right that would come back to haunt you later so tell me about the first lp i believe recorded late 1967 uh tell me about the process to because there's some originals there's some that they supplied how long did it take to make the whole record well first of all we had no intention of recording an lp when we recorded Simon Says, we recorded that in, in, in December of 67. It was released late December. When it started going up the charts, they realized, you know, hey, we need, a, need an album. Uh, We've got to take advantage of this. 
So they rushed us into the studio, quickly chose material, including some things that I wrote, some that Floyd wrote, one that Pat wrote, a couple that uh, Elliot Chipret, who had written Simon Says, wrote. And we laid that album down in, in, in might have been a week, 10 uh, days. And what studio? That I don't remember. I know we were in a in couple. Manhattan somewhere? Hmm? Oh, yeah, it was definitely in Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, were you guys there for the mixing? Because there's some outrageous yeah. kind of mixing on that record. Yeah, I was. A lot of stereo separation. and uh, Yeah, I was there. Um, I didn't have any input into the mixing to, to speak of. Um, Jeff Katz and Elliot Chipret were the main guys. But they would ask me what I thought, and I would tell them. And sometimes they listened, and sometimes they didn't. So what were the expectations before Simon Says came out, before the album, obviously? You know, it was one of those things where they're listening to the playback of Simon Says and the producer says, boys, you've got a hit on your hands, or did no one know? Well, they gave us the song in November, right a month after we signed, and said, this is a demo that we made with a band out of, out of the Philadelphia area. We're not particularly uh, happy with the way it came out, but we think that there's potential with the song. We would like you guys to see if you can come up with a, a better arrangement and see what you can do with it. So we took it home, put it on a record player, and uh, immediate comments around the table were, I ain't playing this crap. <laughs> this is garbage. This is shit. This is not what we signed up for. Fuck this. You know, I know it was the, <laughs> those are all things you can cut out. <laughs> but those are really what were said. And uh, we were this close, very, very close to uh, just walking, walking. And uh, I was at the time the elder statesman in the band because I was 21. Everybody else was 19. Mark was 18. I said, listen, yeah, this is, a, this is a crappy song. But let's face facts. It's a garbage song. Nothing's ever going to happen with it. What the fuck? You know, let, let's just do it and get it over with and give him what he wants. And then we'll go on and we'll get to do our stuff. No, all right. So I kind of got them to, to agree. So we started rehearsing it and it sounded exactly like the demo because that's what we were reproducing, what we heard. We are good at that, you know. <laughs> and they uh, said, well, this ain't going to cut it. This is just what, the same thing as it was. Let's uh, change it up. Let's, uh, let's try to get some beat into it. Let's, uh, let's borrow the, uh, the keyboard and bass parts from Wooly Bully. And see if that makes a difference. And it did. It, did. it was definitely much better. We took that into Jeff, and he went, Yes. Boing. And they said, studio. So we ran into the studio and recorded it, laid it down. So you said that you recognized that it was a catchy song right away. And so when Jeff, when you guys finished recording it, uh, did Jeff, did did everyone in the studio think this is going to be a hit or did they? Well, Jeff always thought everything was going to be a hit song. <laughs> we, still didn't, we still didn't have much faith in it. Okay, it reached number four. May I Take a Giant Step was only number 63. Now, to me, it's as good as catchy a record as Simon Says, and I always wonder why this record didn't reach the top 40 right on the heels of Simon well, you Says. Have to, you have to dig into the psyche of the record-buying popular records public for that, and there's no answer. But, I mean... Some, some songs... Record label was behind some, it? Some songs, uh, no matter how much they get pushed, uh, go nowhere. Other songs come out of come out of nowhere with no backing and spread like wildfire. It's anyway. interesting, but number one in Canada, number two in UK, number two in Australia, number sixty three in the USA. Uh, one of the weird number one in 
believe it or not, in October of 68, months later, for six weeks in a row, was number one in Italy. Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That record has an amazing drum performance and drum sound. And I think, you know, like you said earlier, there are rumors that... That was Floyd on on the studio drums. You said earlier that there are rumors that some bubblegum bands didn't play live or play on these records and to me when you listen especially to that record it just sounds like a band you know with some overdubbed vocals and hand claps and stuff that's exactly what it is yeah there's no one else playing any bit of the track on that record except the five of us and i love how there's a little bit of a jersey accent on this on the word heart hot a little little bit on that which you know mark mark was a a polish immigrant uh, of of a polish immigrant family and he had that sort of a little bit of a lisp and uh that all went into his persona and his singing it was good yeah let's talk about the b-side of uh simon says which is reflections from the looking glass now this is an original and from what i gather this is what the band sounded like before the bubble gum took over is that was that fair yes in fact uh we got that flip side for agreeing to record Simon Says. We'll let you have the B-side. Yes, that was one of the concessions that Jeff made. The song was was mainly written by Mark and his brother, but the lyrics that they had in it uh, were, were not acceptable, according to Jeff. He said, no one put that on the radio. So I came in and, and, and I said, well, I'll fix the lyrics. That's no problem. So I fixed the lyrics, which is how I became part songwriter of it. They gave me 20%. And that's the version you hear. But if you go on YouTube, you will uh, find a version of the song with me singing it with the original lyrics. What was the objectionable content? In one part, once you get there, believe me, it's worth the trip. They didn't want to say trip uh, because it sounded like a drug reference. Oh, I see. So what happens when you have a number four hit? What happens when you're 21 years old in 1967 or whatever? And what, what happened to you guys? Well, you would think it would be good things. <laughs> but for the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, it was only bad things. I explain. Well, the craziness and wonder and amazement of having a number one song that went gold lasted about 15 minutes. And after that, once we started to run into other groups that were out and got this look-down-the-nose attitude from them, which they all did, none of them want to really have anything to do with us because we were a novelty act. They were playing bullshit. We weren't playing rock and roll, you know. And uh, that hit the guys hard. So hard that uh, in March, the uh, bass player left. In April, the drummer left. In August, the other guitar player left. And in September, I was invited to leave. So really 15 minutes, just about. Uh, in that time, were, did you guys start touring? Did you oh, yeah. appear on television? Oh, yeah. We did Dick Clark. We went out to, flew out to California. First time on a plane. Oh, wow. Um, did American Bandstand. So Jeff Katz and Jerry Katzenetz, were these guys who were the kings of bubblegum, sort of undisputed. They produced all these different bands. They did. Some real, some not real. They had their fingers in a lot of pies. They wrote songs. They produced records. They made things happen. And they. it's sort of hard to get a lot of information about them and or what that whole scene was like. And they're sort of notorious characters. What is? Who were they? What were they like? They were just a couple of young guys that met in college and uh, decided that uh, they could make a killing in the in the music industry. That nets it out as far as I could tell. Jeff was the hands-on guy. Jerry was, uh, I don't know what he did, but I didn't see him much. Saw hmm. Jeff most of the time. Jeff was the producer in the studio uh, doing the actual productions. And Jerry would stop and say, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> 
And do you think that, Jeff, is it fair to give him credit for having a great ear for songs or for production or for well, what people uh, wanted? Well, uh, as far as bubblegum music goes, absolutely. I mean, he, he has a quite a number of uh, uh, you know hit records to his to his uh, name to his to his you know he you know he did he did those songs yeah he produced them and uh, did a, did a good job he was also good at uh, at taking uh, you know he was smart in that he would take input from uh, the various songwriters that they, that he worked with that worked with him and let them help in the production I think a good producer takes good ideas and uses them. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how quickly were you back in the studio for second LP, which was 123 Red Light? Because uh, it was released six months after the debut record. Well, there was didn't seem to be any reason to record another album at the point we were, you know, touring. So, and we had no other hit. So once it looked like 123 Red Light was going to be a hit in August of uh, 68, it was on, on the coming up and moving up and getting good airplay, etc. Then they called us in to do an album. Gotcha. So that was, again, recorded as a single, and then, hey, let's rush out an album. Gotcha. That was number five on the Billboard charts. So who else from the, the guys who play on the first record are on the second record? That was interesting, because by the time we, we, we went in to record the second record, uh, many of our guys had left. Yeah. But we called them back in to record. Oh, that's Jeff was happy to, to let them do that and pay him a few bucks. Oh, <laughs> interesting. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Uh, so you said guys were just dropping off like flies. They just and the real reason is they just couldn't take didn't that. Want, didn't want to be involved with uh, the condescension that came along with being a bubblegum artist. Interesting. So, and I and I kind of be be honest with you. At the time, I, I understood where they were coming from. But being more pragmatic, I was willing to go along with it longer than they were. Probably would have continued to the end because, hey, it was it was a money maker, and uh, it was fun, you know, to a certain degree. And uh, sure. but still, n- not doing any serious rock and roll was uh, was a, a burden that someone who considers himself a, a rocker has to carry. You know, it's terrible. So did you quit before the third album, Goody Goody Gumdrops? I didn't quit. I was invited to leave. Invited to leave? Because you were the last guy and they just said- No, I, we didn't get paid royalties from uh, that we were supposed to from Simon Says. We were due royalties in June. We got nothing despite complete many, many requests for a multi-million selling record. Where the hell's the money? And, and nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, we'll get we'll get to it. We'll get to it. And so we gave up. So four of the original five guys got together and we we sued uh, Jeff and Jeff and Jerry and Buddha for payment of royalties. They were served that lawsuit mid-September. The, the day they got served was the day that they told me I was out of the band. What a surprise. Yeah, what a surprise. Interesting. What were the results of that lawsuit? We settled for a few bucks, but it wasn't anywhere near what it should have been. Oh, that's We took the advice of the lawyer, and we shouldn't have. We should have pushed forward and forced, forced an audit because we probably could have gotten a hell of a lot more money. Sure. And you signed away your ability to contest it in the future? Of course. Of course. Oh, terrible. Uh, there's two more uh, 1910 Fruit Gun Company records, Indian Giver and Hard Ride. It's hard to tell who's really on those records. Or We... I had nothing to do with them. Matter of fact, uh, once I left the band in, uh, in in September, other than doing some performing as the Fruit Gum Company in October, November, which I did do, um, I was not involved in any recording. So from from uh, Goody Goody Gumdrops on forward, they were done. You know, 
after I left. Uh, am I right that in the late 70s there was a, a band touring as the Oh, there were bands. There were probably more than one. <laughs> With zero original members. Yeah. So how is it that you come to, I assume you own the name, 1910 Fruit Company, because you today, perform? Yeah. Today we do. How did you, you manage that? Well, we put the band back together in, in 2000. As soon as Jeff got word that we were out doing a show here and there, he contacted me for the first time since 1968. He says, Frank, he says, you know, I own the name, so you can't do this. And I says, well, <laughs> what do you want, Jeff? <laughs> he says, uh, uh, 40%. I says forty percent. I says we're. I says we're we're doing two jobs this year. <laughs> I says after what we get booked and what we get paid, et cetera, there might be a hundred or two hundred dollars left. And if you get forty percent of the of the profits, that would net you yeah, maybe forty eighty dollars. If it, it, maybe a hundred, maybe hundred and fifty at tops. I said that's not really going to work. He goes, well, you can't use the name. I says, well, this is for now. We are, and that was the end of that conversation. Then he had a lawyer send me a basically a cease and desist uh, request, not 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 through a judge or anything, telling me notice that he was going to sue me because I can't do that. He wants he wants his cut, but we chose to ignore that. And then we found out that he never filed the copyright for the the name. Of course, the copyright law being what it is, filing it is just a formality. The owner of the name is the person that created it and uses it. And he had been doing that since 1967. So, I mean, he, he certainly owned the name in de facto. Uh, but we filed it anyway. Uh, we filed the copyright. And uh, he didn't contest it. He, uh, six years later, it becomes f firm if you don't contest it. And apparently there's different pieces of copyright. There's copyright for re recordings and there's copyright for performances. And he could never contest performances because he had never performed. So for all points and purposes, we own the name. But we don't really... For, 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 for the recordings, we don't get any money from the recordings as copyright owners or name owners or anything. And if we tried to get that, I'm sure that uh, we'd have a, a battle. Gotcha. So from 19-whatever it was, when you left, 1968-67, from then to now, have you been able to get a handle on the ebbing and flowing of popularity of the recordings and just the career of the 1910 Fruit Company? Gum fruit gum, the nineteen ten fruit gum company. I would say, you know, it's not a uh, an A list group for 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 our personal appearances. It's less than that. But we do a good show. We do get booked fairly often, and it has been since since COVID. It's certainly gone down. And uh, last year we only did seven shows, and this year so far we only have two or three. There's not a lot of demand out there. But then again, there's not a lot of demand out there for uh, for shows either, you know. So it's not like we're unique in that respect. I get the feeling that this sort of the current oldies circuit is this very small world. Like you, you know, for the past twenty years, you must be playing on bills with this. Like, oh, here's you know Peter Noon. How you doing? Haven't seen you in a few years. How's it been oh, going? Sure. You know, absolutely. Compare notes with the same guys over and over again. Yes. That's that's a true statement. And you know, what are those audiences like? Is it young people, old people, mixture? It turns out to be mostly old people at the meet and greet tables. Uh, quite often, they'll come up and say, "Oh my God, I I 
updated my wife listening to your record, and and here it is, and I can't believe I'm getting to meet you now, and uh, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's fun. That I, lo- I love it. I love it. Simon says over three and a half million copies. One, two, three, red light, uh, Indian Giver, each over a million copies, gold discs. You've made it real clear. No royalties ever from any of those records. Is that right? Is That's that right. And then song, you did write songs and the band did write songs on those first couple records. Uh, do you have part of the publishing that you still get your own? Never got any of the publishing. Zero. But I do get writer royalties, but it's, it's, uh, get it's, your only, BMI or ASCAP it's only from BMI and ASCAP. Okay. Which, oh, they're all BMI. So, and, and, that, it's, and it's nothing. It's, it's nothing. Just, okay. just pe- pennies. Wow. But Sound Exchange, though, has turned into a, a good thing. You know about Sound Exchange? Absolutely, yes. Uh, yeah, when I first signed up with them, I, I got a, uh, as being a performer, singer on, on all the records that I did do, I got a sizable chunk of money, you know, uh, uh, covering from way back when till uh, current. Hey, Frank, but, where but, you been? We've been waiting but, for you. Right. That's but great. Sin- but since then... Um, like I just got a check in December for six months, and it was like fifteen or twenty bucks. Okay. <laughs> so they're not getting a lot of airplay these days. Gotcha. I don't know if this is correct, but I looked on your website this morning, nineteen ten fruitgumcompany dot com, and it seems like you've got one. It seems like probably this spring and summer is your busy times. April twenty ninth, Schenectady, New York, with Jane the Americans, Peter Noon, uh, Dennis Stefano of the Buckinghams. Uh, is is that 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 date is happening? Yes. If folks want to see you, and I'm sure more dates will be added as we get closer to the kind of warmer months yeah we'll be in in springfield new jersey on july 4th also we've done that 12 years in a row great is that outdoors yeah it's an outdoor concert with fireworks yeah uh so looking back on everything it seems like i don't want to say no i don't really see bitterness i do see a little bit of You've been through the ringer, the the music business ringer, a little bit. You you know, and I'm not going to complain though. I mean, you're asking me specific questions about what happened when, and I try to put my mind into that area, and and sound like I, I would have how I would have felt then. But today, I look back on it all as a wonderful experience. Yeah. Happy that I had it, and I mean, let's face it, there's not a lot of people in the world that can say they're, they're, they're involved with three gold records. Oh, I mean, top uh, 10 hits during the 1960s when every song was great. You know, you look at the, the whole top 40, yeah, what and you're like, these that? are all classic yeah, songs. What, hap- what happened to that? <laughs> <clears throat> Why can't we have that today? Yeah, it's a long story, uh, Frank. I'll tell you all about it later. <laughs> Let's end up by hearing Simon Says, uh, your biggest hit. So you took Wooly Bully because that was just kind of in the air. What a great record. And you sort of put it on this demo and voila. Well, uh, we didn't take the song. We took the... Uh, he took the feel. The arrangement. And was this recorded in an hour, two hours, an afternoon, a, a day, a week? We finished Simon Says in a couple of days. A couple of days. Who came up with the good ideas, which I guess is you could call who produced it? I would, you know, well, we did, the band. And uh, my memory says that I'm the one who uh, actually suggested that we use the... Uh, the arrangement of Wooly Bully to, for, to help Simon Says mm. make it a better song. But when I talk to some of the other original members, they say, no, 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 it was, it was all of us. And I said, <laughs> okay, fine. Are you still in touch with the other original guys who play on um, that first record? Just just one. I'm in touch with Pat Carwin. And the other guys, are, are, are any of them still around, still in music? Well, the bass player, Steve Markowitz, uh, passed away about 15 years ago. Mm. Mark, the keyboard player, he had a piano store. Right, right over here in Persephone for years, but he closed that about three, four years ago, and so I haven't 
I haven't been in touch with. I used to stop into the store and say hello every once in a while, but so I have not been in touch with him. Floyd Marcus, the original drummer, um, he came back in 2000, and uh, we were he was with us. So it was two originals. In 2007, we had a falling out, so he left. He lives down by Atlantic City, so I haven't spoken to him since then. Hmm. Uh, the original voice that is the he he's also the organ player, right? The keyboard player. Yes, that's Mark. He has a real distinctive i mean it's it really is a, one of those voices that sounds great coming out of the radio i think that's a big part of why these records sound so well catchy. we all sang simon says just to, just to see what jeff liked and jeff liked mark oh how interesting so we had you each step up and we'll, we'll see who who's yeah. is the catchy so that's a very because because we had of the of the singers in the band i would say myself mark and floyd probably had better bed the better voices um, but uh, Pat had a very good voice too, very unique, like a Todd Rundgren trying to kind of a voice. And uh, Steve didn't really sing much, but sang great harmonies, and he did sing Soul Strutton. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff, and I urge folks to dig into the albums because not just the singles. There's a lot of real interesting album tracks, and you know, uh, get into the 1910 Fruit Gum Company. Let's hear Simon says now, Frank Jekyll. Thanks for spending some time with us. Super interesting. I love hearing these kind of stories. Wonderful. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Hands in the air. 